talking about community and unity. Community and unity. No, we didn't mean to rhyme and put two words together that sounded flashy. Flashy, it just kind of came out that way. Uh, but if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. Again, my name is Daryl Temple. A lot of new faces here. I like to sweat a lot, as you could tell probably when I was leading worship. Um, and uh, I am actually the pastor here. I co-pastor and lead this uh, beautiful family with my wife, who is sitting right here in the front row, Bethany Temple. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, it says this. Love, thank you, John. Love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's pray. Jesus, I need your help. I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would rest upon me now. In this 35 to 40 minutes, I ask that my words would not be of my own, Lord, but that somehow, by the grace of God, your spirit would land on my tongue and anoint it. Lord, nobody has come to hear from me, I'm sure, this morning. They've come to hear from you. And so, Jesus, I yield and I ask that you would speak through your faithful servants. Speak through me the words to encourage this community this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I had the privilege of growing up on the waterfront um, I didn't actually, we didn't actually live right on the beach, but some two or three yards we could see out of our big sliding glass windows the Kingston Lake. And in days like today where it's so hot and humid, our family got to enjoy um, swimming, cooling down, and being refreshed on this lake. Now don't uh, take that as thinking that I'm wealthy. I did not grow up a wealthy person at all. My family was poor as poor as poor could be. We just happened to get lucky with this shell of a house that actually burnt down to the foundation my dad bought when he was single and it happened to be on the lake. But we would enjoy this lake both in the summer, the winter, our family, my brothers especially, would throw big hockey matches. And it was just a, it was a blessing. But um, between the beach and my family's home, there was a good 60 paces, if you would, to get to the beach. And there was a man whose name was Mr. Sands. I really don't know his first name, but we called him by Mr. Sands' his last name. And he was a bit of a grunch, grumpy, excuse me, crunchy tart, who often, uh, you know, gave us kids a hard time. But looking back at it, I, I, back at it, excuse me, I probably would have given um, me a hard time too. Uh, meaning he would, uh, we were kind of a, 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 a rat pack, you know, a, a, a vicious group. And he would often yell off his screen porch, hey, this is private property, get off my yard. And so we had this song for him growing up, and I'm going to sing it for you. I don't know who made this up, I believe it was my uncle, but, and, and, and I'm going to sing it, you probably be like, oh, that's stupid, we, we had fun with it, because we, on our back porch, we would actually shout this song to him while he was sitting on his screened-in porch, and it went something like this, good morning, Mr. Sands, how are you? <laughs> Good morning, Mr. Sands. How are you? Good morning, Mr. Sands. How I like to shake your hand. Good morning, Mr. Sands. How are you? Right, okay, little childhood story there. Anyways, um, as a kid, my memory of Mr. Sands was anything but special. But around 12 years old, our relationship took an interesting turn uh, with Mr. Sands. 
Um, I grew up in an alcoholic, you know, home. My dad was abusive, and and often uh, many nights uh, we would spend with either the cops at the door. I mean, there was just always chaos surrounding um, the family, and, and especially the nights when he would come home from work. And I think Mr. Sands understood and kind of took this in when he was on that chair many nights during the summer, probably listening to the arguing and the fighting and the sirens and different things that would happen at my home. And he took me kind of under his wing at 12 years old, and it was a special relationship. I realized that my intuitions, my uh, feeling, my inkling, my hunch, my notion, my supposition, my belief, my uh, theory of Mr. Sands was drastically proven wrong. He actually became like a grandfather to me. Um, I almost want to cry. I don't even know the guy's first name, but uh, I know him by Mr. Sands, and we, we developed an interesting bond. And the reason I bring this story up is because I was drastically proven wrong about Mr. Sands. And that kind of leads me to what I want to talk to you guys about this morning. And if I could summarize my message in just a couple words, it would be this. Suspicion is not discernment. It's just suspicion. Assuming the worst of people is not you growing in discernment. It's you growing in being a highly probably toxic, opinionated person, and it has really ultimately, I believe, nothing to do with God. Suspicion is subject to our feelings, right? They're based upon our experiences, while discernment is subject to who? God, because He gives us that gift of discernment. And it's based upon the truth, not our suspicion, and certainly not our assumptions of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 one through two, it says this, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And then I love this next verse, verse two, for I decided to, do, to know, excuse me, nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul determines to know nothing, in his own words, nothing about the Corinthian church except for that which had surrounded the gospel, that which had to do with Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Now, in order to grasp the magnitude of that verse, verse number two, we have to understand, I think, and look somewhat at the sketchy history of the Corinthian people, namely the church. The, the cultural climate in Corinth was anything but friendly to Christianity. Its people uh, believed in many gods. They worshipped many gods. Um, and actually, there was the well-known goddess Aphrodite, who was like the center of all their worship. Um, this formerly known Greek uh, city was entrenched in the worship of this goddess who associated herself as being the goddess of love and perversion. The worship of this goddess was believed to be directly connected or fueling the pervasive influence of prostitution in the city, and especially what was commonly known as temple prostitution. Could you believe that? Unfortunately, this... Uh, city had an immoral bent towards 
immorality. And you can see Paul addressing this in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul founded, actually, if you could believe this or not, he founded the church in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, verse 1 through 7, right? We, we see this. Thank you, honey. Paul addressed everything from adultery and incest in this church. How's about that for successful ministry? Paul the Apostle coming back sometime later to address the church in their immorality, a church of which he planted just some time back in the book of Acts. It's said that Paul underwent a period of discouragement. And this was believed to be directly connected to Acts chapter 18, 9 through 11, which was the result of him being fatigued. And actually he needed, or actually the only thing that actually helped him in his fatigue was the intervention of the Lord. And that was with the result of the condition of the church to be planted. He was a bit overwhelmed, a bit perplexed about what the church in Corinth had become. There was four unflattering reasons why Paul goes back to the church he planted. One was to address problems in the local church. Two, to counter worldly wisdom with spiritual wisdom. Three, to correct... um, uh, Sorry, I can't pronounce that word. (laughs) Contentions, that's right. Contentions brought about by the church by certain servants who were divisive so to bring unity again. And four was to address certain questions brought from the Corinthian people. So you take all the major issues that Paul is addressing in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and his lead-off words to these people is, for I decide in my heart to know nothing about you except Jesus Christ and Him being crucified. I mean, Paul has at this time a rap sheet of things that he could say about this church, things that were not rumors, things were actually facts. But yet, he leads off with the words, I've decided in my heart to know nothing about you except for Christ and his crucifixion. These words, in my opinion, are colossal. They are colossal. What gives Paul the capacity uh, to have such grace here that he does? I believe it's found in 1 Corinthians where he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I love what the author John Bloom writes in an article about this particular passage of Scripture. He says this, when Paul wrote, love believes all things, He was talking about the kind of charitable judgment. Christians are called, I love this, to believe the best about each other until a sufficient amount of evidence confirms beyond a reasonable doubt that a transgression has occurred. There is all kinds of incriminating evidences that are against the Corinthian church that would make any pastor go crazy. But Paul should have went down there and unloaded a can of get it right church. But he doesn't. He determines in his heart to know the one thing that they have in common about them, and that is Christ. Paul's aim is to know nothing of them but the shared beliefs. 
Not even the rumors are enough to, sh- uh, to sway his opinion. So how much more if Paul can do this? Mind you, with the church that he planted just back in the book of Acts. How much more if he can do this, the apostle Paul can do this, how much more are we to do this with one another? How much are we to believe a good report? How much more are we to believe the best about one another and not assume the worst about one another? Suspicion is not discernment, friend. It's suspicion. How does this love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, how does Paul do it? The term believes and hopes are sandwiched right between bears and endures. These terms likely refer to the relationships between people, right? These are commonly uh, a, a common text that we hear in most weddings, right? So it's, it's not just about faith and hope in God. Essentially, love believes the best in others and hopes the best for them. One of the problems in the church of Corinth was that they valued the tongues of men and angels. The prophetic powers, faith, they valued these things above the greatest gift of all, love. Church, what are we valuing over the greatest gift of all? The gift that will never end. The gift that will last unto eternity. Their failure was as they valued, they uh, made more of the gifts of the Spirit than they did just simply loving one another. I, 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 I say this often in talking about unity. You know, it's interesting that, in my opinion, the, the remarkable thing about the book, book of Acts, in my observation, is the unity factor. It's not so much the miracles and signs and wonders. The thing that overwhelms me the most is when I see in the Scripture people who walked in a certain likeness of thinking, a likeness of judgment. That's what really fuels me and that's what I see in the book of Acts as being a miracle but you know what's interesting is that once Romans hits the book of Romans hit it's like the apostles work tirelessly to try to convince and plead the church to be one again it's almost like the church lost what it had in the book of Acts once the New Testament starts rolling out Paul knows that the presence of love affirms others and overcomes destructive aspects of our character. Unlike uh, the gifts, love is the glue that holds the church together and advances the gospel, right? The gifts that God gives us like prophecy and healing and tongues, they do not have come with the guarantee of advancing the gospel, but love does. They will know we are Christians by our love. Love provides both the stability and consistency that causes community to thrive. Let me say that again. Love provides both the stability and the consistency that causes communities to thrive. My dog, Snowball, (laughs) has a certain kind of displeasure he loathes and dislikes the mailman. Now, the mailman comes every day, mind you, and sometimes he comes at the same time every day, but yet when he comes, my dog acts rabid. It's like a demon comes on him, 
and his fang, I mean, you got to understand if you've never seen Snowball, I mean, he may be the size of, you know, my arm, maybe, if he's lucky. But when a, the mailman comes, he goes absolutely bonkers and just goes crazy. And I try to remind him, I'm like, Snowball, it's the mailman. It's Snowball, it's the ma-. He comes every day. You see, he wears blue pants. He has a nice little blue hat on with a light blue shirt. It's the mailman, Snowball. God, they're going to take you off to the pound because they're going to report you and thinking that you have rabies or something. I try to explain to him, but it never fails. Every time the mailman shows up, snowballs, snowballs, snowball goes crazy. But a Christian unprepared to battle offense, meaning you're going to have many opportunities to be offended, is like my dog unprepared for the mailman who comes every day, most of the times the same time of every day. Offense is going to come. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. And he said this to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better, wow, these are some strong, hold on to your seat, because these are some strong, you think I can offend you with some of my words? You, this, 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 is, this is the man of which we all profess faith in right here. This is his words in verse 2. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, don't get carried away, folks. Just because he uses the words, the words, little ones, doesn't mean he means newly saved Christians. He's talking about Christians in general. So woe to those. Woe to those through whom temptations come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Oh, man, Jesus, you, we're going to unpack this a little bit. Jesus is smart. He is a smart man. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Interesting now that he's talking about forgiveness. We're following a train of thought here, I guess, in Jesus' mind. He starts off by saying, hey, listen, temptations are going to come. You can count on it. Bank on it. Uh, but, 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 but woe to those in whom temptations come through. It would be better if you just tied a rock around your neck and threw yourself into the sea. And then he quickly pivots and says this, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. I mean, how pathetic is that? Like, we would just be like, don't you, like, seven times? Like, don't you, this is so insincere. Do you even mean this? But Jesus says, if he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the idea is that temptations are going to come, right? Jesus says, count them. But he warns his disciples sternly about being the cause of other people's uh, sinning or being tempted are setting a bad example for them. And in the next breath, Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself. I, I imagine Jesus saying that opening kind of bar to verse 3. The meaning of that, pay attention to yourself, is kind of like when he said in Matthew 7, 5, 7, 5 excuse me, um, deal with the plank in your own eye before you deal with the speck in your brother's. Or Matthew 7, 5, judge not 
lest you be judged. So when I, when I see Jesus or I hear the words, pay attention to yourself, my mind quickly goes to these scriptures. Be on watch, be on alert, be on guard. You don't have to worry about others. Pay attention to yourself. Remember, suspicion is not discernment. It's just suspicion. What's the connection that Jesus makes between temptations that are sure to come? And then his warning uh, to his disciples about being the cause of another person's going astray or being tempted or tempting another person to sin. Then in verse 3, it says, pay attention to yourself. What's, what's going on here? Am I the only one that asks this question? I mean, I'm reading this. I'm like, how, how, are, we, how are we like snapping in and out of thought? Because that's, that's the way I see it. Jesus defines, at least in my mind, the kind of temptation he's referring to in verse 3. If your brothers sin against you and repent, forgive them. I believe that Jesus is forgiving, I mean, uh, uh, referring, excuse me, uh, to the sin of unforgiveness. Some may not agree with that, but whether or not Jesus uses it to illustrate one specific kind of sin. And if it means, or in Jesus, it's opening in verse 1 that he's actually talking about a broad spectrum of temptation that leads people to sin, doesn't really matter. We can just categorize this as one of them because it's certainly something that Jesus gives us as an example, right? Whatever the case, it's very clear that Jesus is not a big fan. He doesn't really like us taking our sin public, thus leading others astray themselves. What matters the most in this text is when others foolishly take their sin public by spreading it around in a community like leaven, affecting others and causing them to stumble. As a result, we need to heed the words of Jesus here. Woe to those. Woe to those through whom temptations come. I mean, Jesus is getting tough. Those are some tough words. I think there was one other time in the Gospels where Jesus said those kind of words, and I believe it was if you actually, it had something to do with children, I, I can't remember, but the kind of toughness in those words of like, hey, it would be better if you not defile one of these little ones that you just take your life. I mean, of course, it's just, <laughs> we're, not, we're not advocating that, but those are some very tough words. I use unforgiveness because Jesus does in verse 3. And for me, there's no better example. There's no better example, especially when it comes to gossip. There's no better example. I mean, what's the first thing that I do when I'm hurt if I'm not tender-hearted in processing my offense? I usually go to somebody. I don't do, I don't do verse 3, I think it is. I don't just pay attention to myself. I, I kind of like say, okay, who can I talk to? Who can sympathize with me? <laughs> who, who, can I, who can I find like a sense of agreement with? Who can, who can understand the frustration that I have towards this brother? You know that righteous indignation? Of course, God has put this here. This isn't, this isn't me. i got to deal with this. I, I, I don't know if I'm alone in that. I imagine I'm not. But if I am, I, I have the tendency to not pay attention to myself, but go to others and start affecting them with my gossip. 
about another brother or sister that I'm hurt with or that have offended me. I'm not going to them and talking to them about it. I don't think that there's any better example to give other than how offense can spread like leaven through a community if we're not careful. And, and, and even in the fact that where we do go public with our grievances towards one another rather than going to the source. After all, that's what the Bible teaches. It teaches us to go to the person who hurt us. It doesn't, it doesn't teach us to go to others, even for quote-unquote counsel. I just got to get some counsel. I just got to hear another voice of reason. Really. I think you could probably, I think we got it a little bit reversed. I think actually you can go to the source first. And then if you're the source refuses to hear you, then you can go get some counsel. It's a weird thing in the church. We, we put the cart before the horse. We're, we're getting counsel before we actually go to the person. And here Jesus says, pay attention, pay attention to yourself. Don't bring your sin public. Don't bring your grievances public affecting others. There's nothing worse that when, uh, uh, when offense grips a community, there is nothing more divisive that pulls us apart other than when we're not taking our pain, our hurt, our grievances, our uh, being mishandled to the source. Usually behind unforgiveness, there's bitterness. And when somebody's bitter, they're offended. And when somebody is offended, they're talking. They're going public. I mean, have you seen Facebook? <laughs> I mean, the moment a politician does something wrong, I mean, you, you can't go to Trump, right? I mean, I get it. But, but I mean, I, I see it all the time. Going public with our pain. Going public with our hurt. We're doing verse 2. We're, we're, we're going to people and kind of in the, in the, in the quote-unquote disguise of like, I just need counsel. It's more so, I just need to purge. We'll purge with the right person. Don't affect somebody else's view of another person that you're having a hard time with. Keep them out of the equation first. And if you have, if that person that you go to refuses to forgive you, then go seek counsel. Go find another voice to speak to that other person that has hurt you. Pay attention to yourself. Unforgiveness is like a petri dish for bitterness and offense. Unforgiveness is the breeding ground for offenses. Bitterness is the devastating sin that can be directly traced to unforgiveness. There's nothing more corrosive in a community than when unforgiveness smolders. This AC is not working enough for me. <laughs> Listen, we all know the effects of Bitterness and offense. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 in closing. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble. 
Now listen to this, just in case you weren't convinced about the, the devastating effects of offense. It says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. Sounds a lot like Luke chapter 17 to me. Don't spread it. Keep it. Go to the source. Don't go to finding counsel and bringing somebody into the picture first. Go to the person first. Then if that person refuses to heed and hear you, take somebody with you. Because there is something about the root of bitter, bitterness that is troublesome in that it can, if, not, if we're not careful, affect many. It can affect many. If we want to protect and preserve our community, we need to believe God, not just for miracles, not just for signs, not just for wonders, but love. A love that bears all things, a love that hopes all things, believes all things, and endures all things. We need that love. If we're to go another four years, if we're to go another six or eight or ten years, by the grace of God, we're going to need 1 Corinthians chapter 13, richly abounding in our community. Friends, in pursuing God's power, in pursuing God's gift, we need to pursue even more so the greatest gift ever given, the gift to carry on to eternity, the gift of love. And the way that we can foster and grow in the gift of love is doing things in a biblical manner, not a worldly manner. Whereby our bitterness, we go to others instead of going to the source. We need to take it to the source. Somebody say, take it to the source. Take it to the source. If we want to last another four, five, six, eight, ten years, we need to take it to the source. Love. Love bears all things. Man, I, I need the love of God to do what I do with you guys. And I'm sure you can say the same thing about me. I need love in my heart. I cannot pastor without love. I need a love that hopes all things because sometimes I don't see it. I don't see the end. I don't see the promises. I lose sight. And then by losing sight, I lose direction. We need a hope that endures. We need a belief of one another that you actually mean and actually want for me the best as I want the best for you. We need a love that endures. Oh, how the church needs a love that endures. Endures one another. Right? Am I, am I preaching to the choir today? You know what? I mean, we need a rich love that can endure our relationship deficiencies, our, our places of where we don't necessarily always see eye to eye. I pray, guys, that in this new season we're in, that even more so than growing or seeing revival, that we would see a great outpouring of love just shed upon. I'm not talking about a hokey little pokey 
religious love. I'm talking about a, a real, genuine, sincere love for one another. I pray it from my heart. I pray it for yours. Jesus, we thank you.